Amen. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you this morning. You know, we have, we have joked a couple times over the last few months as we've been talking from Romans about God's judgment and, and his wrath and about how difficult it is to find songs that, that fit with that sometimes. And what I want you to know is the last song that we sang this morning um, teaches the lesson of the text that we're going to look at today. It is a strong, good parallel. Um, so I hope, that, I hope that that song sets the stage for us to hear God's word uh, today. Do you have your Bible this morning? Good. Romans chapter 3 is where you need to go. Romans chapter 3. Last week we looked at a difficult passage where Paul engages this uh, imaginary objector to the truths he's been teaching thus far. Essentially this man who, who doesn't really exist but is in every, in every service. Uh, at every hearing of the preaching of the gospel, this man is there. Essentially this guy tries to argue his way out of the judgment that is to come. And in that way, he's not too much different from people that we preach the gospel to. And maybe in that way, he's not too much different than some of us, even in this room today, trying to argue our way out of the judgment of God. The reality of God's judgment's not pleasant. I understand why we want to try to find a loophole or an argument around it. It's not pretty to talk about the judgment of God. People will concoct all kinds of ways to get around it. But the reality is, it's real. There's no arguing your way out of it. There is no loophole. We need to talk about the judgment of God. This week, we're going to come to the very end of a very dark tunnel. We will see the summary and conclusion of all that Paul's been teaching since chapter 1, verse 18. You might think that the last leg of this journey through this dark tunnel would be maybe a little easier and a little lighter as we're getting closer to the light of the gospel, which we'll talk about next week and for all the weeks to come, it seems like. Um, but you'd be wrong if you thought it was going to be easier today because it's coming to the end of it. In fact, today may be the darkest day we've seen so far as we've been studying in Romans. As we talk about the judgment of God, the wrath of God, and the sinfulness of man. But the lesson we need to be reminded of, we've talked about it and talked about it and talked about it. And at times I felt kind of bad to spend so much of our time over the last few months talking about sinfulness of man and the judgment of God and his wrath against sin but it's a lesson we need to be reminded of all the time and it's a lesson that we need to proclaim to the world uh, we cannot bypass the sinfulness of man and the judgment of God as we preach the gospel one scholar said it this way unless there is something to be saved from there's no point in preaching salvation or embracing it Another fellow said it this way, he said, we're not ready to hear the gospel until we first understand the indictment against humanity that comes down to us from God himself. And you're going to hear that indictment today in a very vivid, powerful, strong way. Look at it in Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 9. This is what God's word says. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands, there is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become useless. There is none who does good, there is not even one. Their throat is an open grave, with their tongues they keep deceiving, and the poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. 
Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Let's pray together. God, we come before you today, and we ask once again that you would teach us about ourselves and about you. That you would teach us about your righteousness and holiness, about your justice, about your wrath even, that you would teach us also about your grace and your mercy and your love. We pray that you would teach us about ourselves, that we would not rest on any self-righteousness, any internal goodness that can be found in us. God, help us to see ourselves as desperately needy, poor, sick, blind, naked, dead, apart from you. God, what we need is you. We need rescue. We need deliverance. We need resurrection. us to see all of that today, not just with our minds and understanding, but with our hearts and our lives that are forever changed by you. And God, we, we ask this, not, not just for our sake, but for your glory, for your renown, for your praise and honor. In Christ's name we pray. So there are basically three parts of this text today that we'll look at. Uh, the first part we could call a summary, and that is in verse 9 as Paul kind of reaches back to chapter 1, verse 18, and he says, here's what I've been trying to teach you for all of this time. And then in the middle of it, you'll see several Old Testament quotations, and we'll refer to that as string of pearls, and I'll explain later what that means as they come from a variety of locations in the Old Testament, and they're all just strung together to reemphasize and drive home this point that he is making. And then at the end, in verses 19 and 20, you'll see the conclusion of it all and where he's going to kind of leave it until next week. And I want to go ahead and say that, that, that the tone of everything will change next week. Um, I know that it has been a tough summer uh, to come here and to gather together and know I'm going to church this week and we're going to talk about the wrath of God and the sinfulness of man and judgment and anger and, and all of those things. Uh, there is a fantastic word in verse 21 that starts verse 21. Go ahead and look at that. What is it? But. And everything's going to change, right? The rest, the rest of our tone and our, our attitude and even our faces are going to change a little bit, but we are not there yet. We are not there yet, but you'll want to be here next week, and we will smile and celebrate, and we will, we will sing uh, happy songs. Sound good? I can't wait for that. It's going to be good. But let's deal first with this text. Um, talk about the summary in verse 9. He starts out by saying, what then? And uh, what we see in this is that it's the aftermath of this debate with the, with the man, the imaginary man. Uh, Ron Morse called him one night at, at workers' meeting, oh man, because he addresses him that, that way at one point. He calls him oh man. And uh, so that got translated at some point to old man. And uh, the question was just how old is this guy? Was, uh, that's not the point. Um, he's an imaginary guy. 
Uh, and Paul is, is anticipating another line of thinking. After this debate with this, this man, this diatribe with this man, he anticipates another line of thinking that he's going to deal with, another objection. So he says, what then? Are we better than they? That's the big question. Are we better than they? And it's, it's difficult to determine exactly who we is and who they are in this verse. Uh, there's one school of thought that would say the we is the Jews. Paul including himself in that group as one who would trace his lineage to Abraham, would see himself as, as one of the children of Israel. Um, and the, so the we would be the Jews and the they would be the Gentiles in this school of thought. And that fits pretty well with the context. We've been seeing that happen, uh, the difference between Jews and Gentiles and, and the similarities between Jews and Gentiles. There's another school of thought, though, that would say not we Jews and they Gentiles, but that Paul is really making a dramatic shift of gears here to prepare us for what's to come, where the we would be the Roman Christians and the they would be everybody else, including Jews and Gentiles. And that's a really interesting thought that really helps us move toward application in this text. And what I will say to you today is I don't think it ultimately matters. I don't think whichever school you decide to camp out in, I don't think it really matters um, when it comes to the overall meaning of the text. Because what he's driving at is whether it's we or they, we're all in the same situation. We're all in the same situation. Jews and Gentiles and people who, who are in the church but maybe are not rightly related to God through faith in Jesus Christ, all in the same situation, all under sin, all deserving of the wrath of God, and all needing a Savior. Uh, that's where he's ultimately going with this. So I think the decision is not really so important as to who we is and who they are. That's probably terrible grammar, Joe. Um, but I, <laughs> I should just use some air quotes in all of this. Um, but that's, that's where we're at. Um, so it doesn't really matter as, we, as the overall meaning of the text unfolds in the next phrase. Look what he says. He says, what then are we better than they? Not at all. Not at all. And if he is talking about Jews and Gentiles, um, we, we come to this question of, well, what about, what about the advantage? He's been dealing with this kind of for a long time now, saying, well, what advantage has the Jew? None. And then he turns around and he says, well, what advantage has the Jew? And he says, much in every way, right? And so it seems like he's contradicting himself, but he's really talking about two different, two different perspectives. When it comes to advantage and privilege, the Jew has, has much over the Gentile in a lot of ways, namely that he has the word of God. He has the direct revelation of God, and the Gentile doesn't. The Gentile is left to look at creation and discern who God is and how God is. And God is knowable through creation, but, but there's not salvation in that. And so the Jew has a certain advantage, but when it comes to position, when it comes to salvation, when it comes to redemption, he doesn't have any advantage. That the Jew and the Gentile are just alike apart from the response of faith that is absolutely necessary for salvation. So the Jew merely tracing his lineage back to Abraham doesn't find salvation unless he has faith in Jesus Christ. The Gentile, even though he may notice all kinds of things about God through the creation, unless he has faith in Jesus Christ, is also lost. And so at the end of the day, when Paul boils down all of this argument he's been making, this is the conclusion. He says, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged... Since chapter 1, verse 18, he's been building this argument. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. One scholar said it this way, when it comes to privilege and responsibility, the Jews have much because of revelation. When it comes to favoritism, they have none. 
for none will be exempt from the judgment. Another fellow said it this way, for while there are very real advantages to be enjoyed by the Jews, those advantages in themselves are not salvific apart from the response of faith. So he says all of them, all men, Jews and Greeks are all under sin. And that last phrase we need to spend some time on when he describes them as being under sin. Under sin needs some time. We've been saying for several weeks now that we are all sinners. We all deserve God's wrath. We all need a savior. And Jesus is the only savior. But what Paul does here in that last phrase is he paints a more complete picture of the sinfulness of man. You see, it's not as if we are merely prone to sin occasionally and therefore under the wrath of God. You catch me? It's, it's not as if our problem is I make a few mistakes or, or I make a few bad decisions and therefore I am under the wrath of God. That's not sinfulness in a biblical understanding. In fact, it's not even as if we have a habitual pattern of sinfulness in our lives and therefore we are under the wrath of God as if I've got this habit or this addiction to sin, and therefore, because I sin so much and I sin so regularly, I am under the wrath of God. Paul paints a different picture here when he says, all men are under sin. One scholar described it this way. He said, sin is like a master or a king and reigns over us and in us. Not that it coerces us to do what we don't want to do, but it makes us want to do what we ought not to do. You catch that? You remember that? Some of you still live there. Some of you should be able to remember that before Jesus changed your life, that sin didn't make you do what you didn't want to do. It made you want to do what you shouldn't, shouldn't do, what God says to do. This guy goes on and he says, he says, we are not innocent victims of sin. We are co-conspirators with sin against God. That's the picture he paints. He, the, another scholar says it this way, Paul personifies sin as a cruel tyrant who holds the whole human race, race imprisoned in guilt and under judgment. All right, so, so we want to talk about this, that our problem is not just that I sin occasionally. The world's problem is not that they just sin occasionally and make a bad decision here and there. The world's problem is not even that they sin regularly, habitually, and have a life marked by sin, sinful actions. The world's problem is that they are under sin under the domination of sin and the rule and the headship they are under sin and the reason why we need to understand the problem rightly is because if we understand the problem rightly we can get to the right solution but if we have a misunderstanding about the problem we will come to the wrong conclusion about what the solution is let me walk back through this with you if our problem if the world's problem is simply that they occasionally make a bad decision what would be the answer the answer would be Let's make some better decisions. Let's educate people so that they'll make better decisions, right? We hear this kind of language sometimes uh, in, in child raising and rearing and, and talking to them about, oh, we just need to make better decisions. That'll fix your problem. You just need education to make better decisions. Or we just need someone to hold your hand and help you make those better decisions. I'm all for good decisions, but the problem is not that we just make bad decisions occasionally, right? right? So what if, what if the problem was I've just, I've, just, I've just got a habit of sin? I just got a habit of sin and I'm in this rut uh, of sinfulness in this one area. What would be the answer to that? Well, it'd be rehab or, or some kind of behavior modification of some sort or some kind of moral reformation would be the answer. So if that's the problem, the answer is not Jesus. 
But if the problem is we are under the domination of Satan and sin and self, if the problem is we are under sin, then the solution is we need a redeemer. We need a rescuer. We need a liberator. We need someone who can save us out of that, take us out of that dominion and bring us under his dominion. Catch this? And that's the problem. We are, the world is under sin and needs someone who can come and deliver them out of that and bring them under a new domination in a new kingdom, okay? And that's, that's the gospel, isn't it? That Jesus, Jesus doesn't just come and teach us how to make better decisions, does he? He doesn't just come and teach us how to break bad habits, does he? No, he comes and gives us a whole new heart. He gives us a whole new life. The Bible says he transfers us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son, right? It's part of the way the gospel works is we are, we are rescued. We are delivered. We are redeemed out of an old life and into a new life. So it is highly significant in this text that Paul says we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin, under sin. Then the next part of this text, what Paul is going to do is he's going to make that point and drive that point home by stringing together unrelated, seemingly unrelated Old Testament snippets. And, and we call this in, in biblical studies a string of pearls uh, where he's just going to kind of one after the other say, see, it says this here and here and here and here and here and here. So that at the end of it, you say, all right, I get it. Stop. Stop. Because the implication is Paul could go on and on and on forever on and on in the Old Testament saying, this is where it says that, this is where it says it, it says it again over here and again over there and in, in this place, and he could literally go on and on forever. So, string of pearls starts out with this amazing phrase. In verse 10 it says, as it is written. And this introductory phrase is more important than you think. By quoting all of these Old Testament passages, Paul is teaching that the message that he's preaching here is not new. He didn't invent this. He didn't invent this whole concept that, that we are sinful, we are under sin, and God will judge sin, and we deserve the wrath of God because we are under sin. He didn't invent this. God's been saying this from the beginning. God's been saying this from the very beginning, that we are under sin and we deserve his wrath. And what we ultimately need is not a law that will teach us how to reform our behavior. What we need is grace that will give us a new heart and a new life. And that's where we're headed, right? That's where we're headed, right? Not a law that will transform our behavior. That won't help us. What we need is a new heart and a new life and a new standing and position by God's grace. So he sets out and says, as it is written. And then we can break these quotes down into three different parts. First, in verses 10 and 11, we see, and 12, we see the universality of sin. Look what he says here. He says, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is no, none who does good. There is not even one. Does that make you feel great about the world? About yourself? How many, how many are righteous? Zero. How many have turned aside? All of them, right? Do you see the language he's using? He's not, he's not leaving room for exceptions. He doesn't say most are evil and most have turned aside. He says all of them are evil and all have turned aside and there is no one who does good, not even one. Do you see how he goes to great lengths to make that point? That sin and this category of being under sin is universal. 
And we need to remember that. We're going to talk about it when we get to application, that when we go to Dominican Republic and when we share the gospel with our neighbor and when we go back to school in just a few days, we need to remember that, that there is no one in our school or at our office or in the Dominican Republic or on this earth who is good. There is no one who is righteous. There is not a single person who doesn't need a savior. And we need to remember that. So first he speaks of the universality of sin. Then he speaks of the specific manifestation of that in speech. In verses 13 and 14, he talks about uh, the throat and the tongue. Look what he says. Their throat is an open grave, and with their tongues they keep on deceiving, and the poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. This is one of the ways, one of the ways this sinfulness, this, this being under sin comes out in people's lives, in all kinds of people's lives, is through their mouths. How many of you could be, be a witness to that? That you see the sinfulness of men coming out through their mouths. Words that cut and words that pierce and words that you just can't take back. I was talking to a guy uh, just last week about that. Had a, had a difficult conversation with someone and said, there were words said that cannot be taken back. Words said in that conversation that cannot be taken back. How many of you have been there? On the receiving end of that and on the giving end of that. We've been there, right? And that's one of the ways this sinfulness comes out of us is through our mouths. But then he talks not only about speech, but he talks about society and conduct more generally. He says in verses uh, 16, well, 15, 16, and 17, he says, Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. He says, he says the result of this sinfulness of man is not harmony and unity in society. The result of the sinfulness of man coming out through their lives is destruction and war and violence and hatred. They're not, they're not running to make peace. They're running to shed blood. And we see this. We see this all over the world. The problems in the world, the specific manifestations of sin are a result of the sinfulness. That all of this stuff, these words and this violence and this, this uh, war... It's not the problem in and of itself. It's a symptom of the larger problem of sinfulness, right? We don't just want to work backwards, and we don't want to say, all right, your problem, your problem is your mouth, so let's really work hard to make sure you're saying the right things. Is that where your problem is? Is that where the world's problem is, their mouth? No, where do those words come from? They come from the heart, and so we need a new heart. Is the problem that people are killing each other? No, it goes much deeper than that, and so the solution must run much deeper than that, and that's where we're headed with all of this. So he talks about the universality of sin, then he talks about speech, then he talks about the result in society, and then in verse 18 he sums it up with this kind of root and ground of sinfulness. In verse 18 he says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That's, that's the foundation, that's, that's the problem. Don't fear God. It's ultimately about relationship with God. And isn't that where we were in, in Romans chapter 1 verse 18? Isn't that what we saw at the beginning? That the reason why God has handed them over in the lust of their flesh is because they suppressed the truth of God and they ignored him. They rejected God and therefore all of this sin came out. Remember that? It, it's all about, all of this is flowing from a relationship with God or a lack of relationship with God. Also, not only is verse 18 kind of the summary of the problem, it's also a hint at the solution. The solution is a right relationship with God. And a right relationship with God is made available by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Through his death, burial, and resurrection. And that's where we're going to go for the rest of Romans. That we have to have a, have a reason to go there. And that's what Paul is trying to do 
in this first part of Romans. So he talks about this Old Testament string of pearls, quotes text after text after text that drive his point home. And then in verses 19 and 20, he gives the conclusion. And this is powerful. Look what he says. He says, now we know that whatever the law speaks, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. A lot of people in Paul's day would say, what do we need? We need the law. We need some rules and regulations. We need some, some boxes to check off our list. And Paul says, that's not going to help. What good is the law? Let's think about that for a minute. What does the law actually do? What does the law actually do? Does it save? Has it ever saved? No. It has always and only made people aware of their sin. Now, surely there is, a, there is a part of the function of the law that helps guide us in our relationship with God, but it was never intended to be salvific. It was never intended to be salvific. One scholar said it this way, it is the straight edge, the law is the straight edge that shows us how crooked we are. The law brings the knowledge of sin, not the forgiveness of sin. The law does not save, it simply shows us that we need to be saved. Martin Luther said it this way, the principal point of the law is not to make men better, but worse. That is to say it shows them their sin, so that by the knowledge thereof, they may be humbled, terrified, bruised, and broken. Why do we have the law? To make us humble, terrified, bruised, and broken. And by this means, they may be driven to seek grace and so come to that blessed Christ. When you read the law, is that what happens to you? You read the Old Testament, you read the laws and the expectations of God's people, and you say, yep, I'm doing a pretty good job of this, checking those boxes off pretty regularly. Or do you read the law and say, oh, man, oh, no, I am in so much trouble because I have broken all of these laws. And when I read the Old Testament, I know that lawbreakers are punished, and I know that I deserve punishment. So what am I going to do in response to that? Argue with God that I haven't really broken the law? That's not going to work, is it? We've seen that play out in Romans chapter 3. Argue that you haven't broken the law? Argue that God would be unjust to punish you for breaking the law because you're breaking the law actually makes him look better? No, you don't have an argument. You don't have an argument. So the law teaches us about our sinfulness. It brings us to a place where we need grace. And here's the result. Now we know... Paul says, and we know that whatever the law speaks, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Every mouth closed and all the world accountable to God. This is a courtroom picture, a courtroom picture of the prosecution making its case, making, making its case against you and me and every person on the planet, laying out how sinful we are, how broken we are, how dead we are, prosecution makes its case and then it says prosecution rests and now it's the defense's turn to stand up and make defense and the defense stands up and has nothing to say absolutely nothing to say because every charge every charge that the prosecution made was absolutely right and you don't have an excuse you don't have an argument you don't have a word to say it's a dismal picture right that god sends down this indictment makes these charges, and they're absolutely right, and you've got nothing to say in response. Is there any hope? Is there any hope if that's the case? Is there any hope if it says 
every mouth may be closed and all the world accountable to God because by works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Is there any hope? Not in the law, there's not any hope. But there is hope. There is hope because look what it says next. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. You catch where this is headed? Like he is breaking down everything that we would possibly stand on in our own flesh. And he's saying all of that comes to nothing in the end. But here's where you can stand. And here's where you can stand. And just like there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, when it comes to the condemnation that we deserve because of our sin, in the same way there's no distinction between Jew and Greek for all who would call on the name of the Lord will be saved. We're headed in a really good direction at the end of all of this. But we need to really wrestle with this indictment and this darkness. So is there any hope? Yeah, there's hope. Not in the law, there's hope in Christ. Not in my self-righteousness, but in hope and mercy and grace and forgiveness. So here are three applications today. Number one, we, we who profess faith in Christ must make sure that we have accepted the diagnosis as true for us. So we read all about this, and I've struggled with this over the last couple months. Struggled with talking about sinfulness of the world and the wrath of God and the judgment of God. And, and wanted to see that as applying to the world. And, and, and see that as applying to my lost neighbor. That he is, he is undone and he is unrighteous and he deserves the wrath of God. But I need to remember that that's where I was too. There's a part of this that we must make sure we are accepting this indictment upon ourselves. Even those of us who profess faith in Christ need to remember this and need to accept this indictment. Because there must be no self-righteousness about us. We who follow Jesus must not be self-righteous. We not, must not say, hey, I'm, I'm in I'm in and I'm going to heaven and I've escaped the judgment because of some good thing that's in me. I must always remember that there is no good thing in me. Paul's going to say that later on in Romans. There's no good thing in me that is in my flesh. There's no good thing in me. We need to have absolute humility, utter dependence on God's grace. Those of you who profess faith in Jesus Christ must remember this indictment is true for you as well. That when you stand... Before God in judgment, you will not make an argument about how good you are. You will not make an argument about the things that you have done or how so-and-so is worse than you. Your only argument will be mercy, grace, and the work of Jesus Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. We must not forget who we were. When we forget, as believers in Jesus, who we were, we stop depending on Jesus we forget who we were and that we deserved only the wrath of God for our sins, we will stop depending on him and we'll start depending on ourselves. So we who profess faith in Christ must make sure that we have accepted this diagnosis as true for us. Application number two is we, we must learn to see our neighbor and the nations through this lens. Through the lens that Paul has given us in the first part of Romans, we must learn to see the neighbors and the nations, that they are not sick, they are dead. That they do not need help, they need life, and they need resurrection, and only Jesus can do that, right? We must learn to see through that lens that there are not degrees of lostness. 
that I don't look at people in Harrisburg, even though they have amazing access to the word of God, that they are somehow less lost than the people in Central Asia who have never heard about grace in Jesus Christ. Brad, when, when you deal with, with folks in your work, do you ever say, that guy's really dead? Like, do people come in to your office and say, all right, Brad, on a scale of 1 to 10, tell me how dead my mother is? Does that happen? No, because you're either alive or dead. There, there aren't degrees separating, right? I don't mean to be crude about it, but that's the way it is in this world. And so often we look at people and we say, well, they're, they're, they're just a little dead. They're just a little lost. They just need a little help. No. Every man apart from Christ is really dead, as dead as can be, and needs not a little help, needs life that comes from above. And we've got to learn to see it that way. You're either alive or you're dead. We've talked about this in Romans, right? There are only two kinds of people in the world, saved and lost, living and dead. There are only two destinations after this life, heaven and hell. There aren't degrees. Well, it's, it's going it's to be sort of bad for that guy but not as bad as for some other guy. I don't get that. Or yeah, so-and-so is just barely going get, to get into heaven, just barely by the skin of their teeth. You hear people talk like that? I don't think that's the way it works. I think you're either his or you're not. You either belong to, to God or to Satan. There's no middle ground, no middle road. And we need to learn to see our neighbors this way. That they are not sick, they are dead. They don't need help, they need life. And only Jesus can give that. Third application. As we stretch all the way back to Romans chapter 1, verse 18. As Paul talks so much about wrath and judgment, is we must love people enough to tell them the truth. And all of the truth. As we preach the gospel, we've got to tell them the whole story. We need to be loving enough to talk to them about God and his holiness, and his righteousness, and his judgment, and his wrath against sin. We need to love them enough to tell them about man, and his sinfulness, and depravity. We need to love people enough to tell them that they're not okay. They're not good. They're not righteous. We need to love people enough to tell them that they are dead. And we tell them as one who used to be dead. We know what that's like. We know what it's like to be dead. We know what it's like to be lost. We were there. The most loving thing you can tell to a lost person is that they're lost. A lot of people are wandering around and they don't even know they're lost. We must love people enough to tell them the truth about God and about man. And we must love people enough to tell them the truth about Christ. We haven't gotten there yet <laughs> in Romans. We really haven't gotten there yet. We don't just walk around telling Harrisburg, you are sinful, unrighteous people in Harrisburg who deserve God's wrath and his judgment. And then walk away, do we? Well, we tell them the truth about Jesus, who came to die for sinful man, who took their place as their substitute, who suffered the wrath and the death that they deserve, and not only suffered, but beat it defeated wrath and death and sin and hell and gives victory by grace, gives life to us by grace through faith, trusting in him. We need to love people enough to tell them that. We need to look out and see this world rightly. 
love them enough to tell them the truth. And the amazing thing about Romans is you're going to learn that as you tell people the truth of the gospel, as you proclaim the gospel with your mouth, God speaks those words into people's hearts with power and authority and gives them a new life. He, he goes through this amazing sequence where he says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call upon one in whom they have not believed? And how can they believe in one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear unless there's a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? That means that although the work of salvation is completely a work of God, he has been gracious to invite you into the process. He's been gracious to invite you into the process where he calls you and you preach and people hear and they believe and they call upon the name of the Lord and they are saved. They won't be saved if they don't hear. They won't hear unless we preach. So we need to love people enough to tell them the truth. And when we do that, I think we'll get to see incredible things. I think we'll have a front row seat to the miraculous work of God saving men and women and boys and girls. Let's stand together and pray. God, help us as your people to accept the diagnosis that you have laid out, the indictment that you have laid out. God, I pray that you guard my heart against any self-righteousness. I pray that you would give me absolute humility and utter dependence on your grace. God, I pray that I will never forget who I was and that I will never stop depending on the work of Jesus who died and rose again. I pray that you help us to see our neighbors and the nations through the lens you have provided for us. Give us your eyes for the world. Give us your heart for the world. God, help us to love people enough to tell them the truth. The whole truth. The difficult part of the gospel, the dark, bad news. And the glorious good news. Grace. Forgiveness. Reconciliation. Peace with you. probably people in this room today who are depending on the law or their works or their goodness. Ultimately, they're depending on themselves and think that as they stand before you in judgment, they'll be okay. God, teach this lesson that there's none righteous and none who understands and none who seeks for you, that by works of the law, no flesh will be justified in your sight. God, I pray that the law will do its job today in this place and drive men and women and boys and girls to Christ for mercy, for grace. I pray that you have your way with us, all of us, those who are yours and those who are far from you. Have your way and change us for your own glory. In Christ's name we pray.